Good morning. This one right here is teaching Sunday school, the little one, this morning. So Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit this morning. And uh, to start, I would be amiss if I didn't pray. So if you would, take a moment with me and let's pray. There is nothing worth more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You are our living hope. Your presence, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I personally have tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I pray that you would flood this place. Fill this room with your glory is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. There is nothing worth more. Nothing could ever come close. You are our living hope. Amen. So I've titled the sermon this morning, Having the Holy Spirit dwell in you is better than having Jesus next to you. And as we move into the text, I think you're going to understand why I have titled the sermon that way. William Tyndall, I've spoken of him before from from this pulpit. He was born in 1494 in England. He died October 6th, 1536. He translated the Bible into English and was martyred for it. The word church in our English Bibles is the Greek term, and I think you're going to see this on the screen, ecclesia. The term literally means an assembly or a gathering of people called out for something. The first believers were an assembly called out to engage in mission. Over the years, however, a terrible thing happened to Christians' concept of church. In the Middle Ages, believers began to think of a church as a place that people went for religious services rather than a movement built around a mission. Interestingly, our English word church comes from the German word kirch, which means literally a sacred place rather than ecclesia. By the time we English speakers conceptualized church, we were already thinking of it as a place and not a movement. People began to go to church rather than be the church. But then the Holy Spirit did something awesome. He raised up a group of people, we now call them reformers, who reasserted the centrality of the gospel in the mission of the church. 
The church exists, they said, the reformers, to preach, to spread the gospel. One of the reformers was this young theologian student named William Tyndall. He devoted most, if not all of his life, to translating the Bible into English. The common person could not read the Bible at this point. Every time Tyndall came to the word ecclesia in the Greek New Testament, he translated it congregation instead of church because he wanted to reclaim the idea that the church was not a place to go, but a movement to join. This infuriated the authorities because in so doing, Tyndall had undercut their power. Controlling the places of worship meant controlling the people. And so when Tyndall downplayed the place, he diminished their control. Places you can control, movements you cannot. They tried Tyndall as a heretic. During his trial, Tyndall said to one of the church leaders, if God spares my life, I'll cause that boy over there with his hand on the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. On October 6, 1536, Tyndall was strangled and then his body was burned at the stake. Tyndall's last words were this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. From that, the translation called the King James Version was completed. Other translations of the Bible that you hold in your hand all spurned from Tyndall's life and efforts. The Lord did indeed answer Tyndall's prayer. You see, in the Scripture, the Spirit is a person. Don't, don't make a mistake. He is a person. But it can be confusing, like in Acts. He presents himself for the first time as a mighty, rushing wind. However, those filled with the Spirit, like the wind, they move. They move to those within their community in need of the gospel. They may even move away from comfort. They move to those outside of their communities who are broken and in need of hope. They move to the ends of the earth in places that do not share their language or culture. They move towards hatred in hopes to bring hope. They move towards danger to bring safety. They move towards death itself if it means making God supreme and treasuring Christ and preaching the gospel to a lost world. You see, movements by definition move. And that means if you're not moving, Maybe you're not a part of the movement. Where there is no movement, 
There is no spirit. Where the spirit of God invades, his people move. Now, this is an interesting quote from Bono. Religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. Yep. Look at our text, John 16, 7 through 9. Last week, I kept my jacket on the whole time. Nobody gave me any points for it, so I'm taking my jacket off. I'm hot. Y'all were hot last week. I heard you say it. I saw you all out there doing this. I'm like, I'm hanging on to this coat. Maybe it's these fire right there. John 16, 7 through 9. Read along with me. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Think with me for a moment about how absurd this must have sounded to those guys, the guys, the disciples who had been following Christ. It would be to your advantage, guys, if I go. Now, think about it. You've been walking around with this all-knowing, miracle-working God of the universe, and it's starting to dawn on you, this is no regular dude. This is God. And then he says, it's to your advantage if I leave. Now you're going, I don't see how, bro. How could it be to my advantage if I leave? And Jesus explains further in our text. But let me ask you this question and get you thinking with me. Why did the Holy Spirit not come until after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension? Why wait? Why did the Holy Spirit not come sooner? Because we know from Acts, when he comes, I mean, Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to faith like that. The power of the Holy Spirit is a mighty rushing wind that takes over the hearts of people. Why didn't he come sooner? Look with me at John 16, 14. In our text, I think it has the answer. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying, The Holy Spirit will glorify me. He's going to take what is mine and reveal it to you, declare it to you. So, first, The Spirit's ministry is to reveal the person and work of Christ. So the Holy Spirit couldn't come before the person and work of Christ was finished on earth. So the the person of Jesus comes, 
He does his works. He gets crucified. He ascends to heaven. And then the Father sends the Spirit because now the work is done. So he had to wait. The Spirit needed to wait till the work of Christ was finished. But now he comes. The second reason, I believe, in answer to my question, why did he wait, is the Father gives the Spirit to the church, which is us, to vindicate his son's faithfulness in completing the work of salvation. In other words, the Holy Spirit is like a stamp in the heart of the believer and a stamp on the church that Jesus is real, that he came, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross and he was resurrected and he's real and the Father sends the Holy Spirit to say, and here's the seal. It happened, it's real. The Spirit of God will now move from, think about it in the Old Testament. I love that the Bible is, some theologians call it progressive revelation. Because in the Old Testament, God came to the nation of Israel, just them, no other nations. And he comes in the form of a cloud called the Shekinah glory. And I don't know if you know much about it, but when they were in the desert, the cloud would hover over the people. And when the cloud would move, the people would know it's time to pack up our tents and move because God is moving. So in the Old Testament, the saints had God with or uh, how would I say that? God among them or with them. But then when you move into the New Testament, Jesus comes incarnate, meaning in the flesh. And so now there's this even further revelation of not just among you, but I'm going to be actually in the flesh with you. But then you know what happens at Pentecost in Acts 2? It goes from among you to Jesus with you to the Holy Spirit in you. You see how God is moving, progressively revealing himself to his people. Now we have him in us. And so in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter refers to the death and the resurrection and thousands respond. The question that I have is, it feels to me like the church and believers and even myself at times question how the Holy Spirit works and we, we kind of miss or miss track of it. Um, Caleb, if you know how to work that AC and you want to, if, are y'all hot? Yeah, I see people fanning. If you know how to do it, you can turn it on. How Christians tend to relate to the Holy Spirit. I think there are two ways Christians miss walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, at least two ways. They fall off on one side or off on the other side. Look at there. That's a med student at work for us right there. And I got an amen there in the back. Thank you, Michael. That's when you know your preaching's slack, so you, you get amens for the AC coming on. I love having a small enough church that we can just have a personal dialogue. Two ways Christians miss walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The first way that we miss it and don't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit is we do it apart from the Word of God. What I mean is some people experience or they pursue an experience in the Spirit apart from what God's Word says. They listen to voices in their hearts and they seek signs from God in the heavens and they always seem to be talking about what God said to them through a stirring in their spirit or in a strange set of circumstances. Now, the question must be asked, can or does God speak to his people through the power of the Spirit? Of course he does. Of course he does. But does what he says to us in those moments ever contradict what his word says? Never. It never contradicts what his word says. The spirit and the word work together. So the second way that people miss what it means to live and move in the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given is they seek to obey the word of God without reliance or dependence on the spirit. And so they, uh, they may relate to the Holy Spirit in the same way that many of us relate to the pituitary gland in our body. And some of you are going, what is the pituitary gland? I don't even know that I have a pituitary gland. I promise you, you do, and it is helping you. That's how we relate to the Holy Spirit sometimes. It's like, I think I have one, and it's helping me, I think, but I'm not real sure where it's at or what it's doing, and it's helping us grow. Well, that's not good. We need to know more about the Holy Spirit's work in our life than we know about our pituitary gland. And so we need to rely and depend not just on the word, but when we hear from the Lord through his word, we should ask God to speak to us. He should illuminate the word for us, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Word work inseparably. The Spirit and the Word of God work together. When one of them is not in place, typically there is dysfunction. It's like having a lamp, but it's not plugged in. There's no power. Biblical knowledge apart from the Spirit's work is impotent. It doesn't accomplish anything. Now, our daughter... One of our daughters lives and works in D.C. And every time I drive up to D.C., I'm looking kind of for one thing to know that I'm getting close. And if you've, if you've done this, you probably have done it as well. I look for the Washington Monument because it's, you know, standing there majestically. You can see it from a long way out. I'm sure it's probably got hundreds, if not thousands, of light bulbs that are illuminating the Washington Monument so that when people pull into the city of D.C., they see that incredible monument. Now, I don't usually think, wow, look at those lights. I bet that takes a lot of money to run all those light bulbs that's illuminating this Washington Monument. No, what I think is the Washington Monument is majestic looking. The Holy Spirit's job 
is to illumine the person and work of Christ. His job is to make much of Christ. And so when I meet people that talk more about the Holy Spirit than they do about the person and work of Christ, it could be, not necessarily, but it could be a hint that perhaps they're misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul believed the study of the Word without this illumination from the Spirit was useless. That's why after expounding in the gospel in great detail for three chapters in Ephesians, he stops explaining and he starts praying that the Spirit, now I want you to follow this in Ephesians 3, Paul stops explaining and he starts uh, praying that the Spirit would enable the Ephesian believers to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And here's the part that I want you to get. That surpasses knowledge. What's he talking about? How am I going to grasp something that surpasses knowledge? It's contradictory. Paul is praying a prayer that is a contradiction. Maybe. It's interesting because in the Greek, there are two words for knowledge. There's this word, oida. You should see it on the screen. Oida means facts and data and, and cognitive pieces, a knowledge of facts and data. But then there's another word, genoska. And it refers to an internalized knowledge gained through experience. In asking God to help believers know the love of Christ, Paul used the word gnoska. Paul wants us to have a knowledge of the love of God that we experience in our soul. Not just a knowledge that we can have in our heads. And you know, that's what happens in life, isn't it? I remember um, a couple of our children are here today, so it's interesting. The, uh, when, when our first child was born, a lady came up to me at our church. I mean, he, he wasn't a week old, maybe. And she said, did you ever know you could love something so much? And honestly, Bryce, I'm sorry. I thought to myself, I guess, you know, I, I honestly at that moment, a week old, it's like we hadn't had a lot of experiences, you know, he's just sleeping and pooping. But then probably eight years later, with all the experiences and birthdays and riding bikes and learning to do this and learning to do that, what parent wouldn't give your own life for your children? I think, in part, the reason you become a Christian, if you are, and you're still here on earth, is because God is doing this experiential kenosa knowing, loving, experiencing Him. Because when that happens in your soul, 
in an experiential way. You go and sell everything you have for the pearl of great price, and you make much of him, and you see him as the true treasure that he really is. But that only happens not through facts, not through data, but the Holy Spirit experientially revealing. And it changes us. It changes us. We need to experience his presence and power in a personal way. In a personal way. Look with me now back at our text, John 16, 8 through 11. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Why will he do it? Because they don't believe. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He does a lot of other things, but in our text today, these are the things it says. Now, when it says he convicts the world, he convicts the world, it gives us hope that many who are in the world, the world system, and are currently opposed to the person of Jesus, will not be a part of the world forever, but they will repent of their sins and believe in the person of Jesus. He will convict them and they will turn. It's a promise from the word of God. But they need the spirit of God to convict and to speak into their hearts. So that's one role of the Holy Spirit is he convicts and he speaks into the heart. And then he shows us our sin. He reveals to us our sin nature, our selfishness, our lusts, our greed, our pride, our self-absorbedness that all of us have. We're all self-absorbed, whether we realize it or not. The world kind of revolves around you. You don't wake up in the morning and go, what, I wonder what Clint wants for breakfast. No, you wake up and say, I wonder what I want for breakfast. Your whole world is geared towards you and mine too. But the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. I share this story because it's a small sin. It's a really small sin. But the scriptures say, if you are faithful in the little things, God will entrust you with much. So let me share the story. The story is a, of a mentor of mine who's now in his 80s. He was a pastor of a, of a very uh, Christ-honoring church. And <clears throat> I lived in Birmingham for a season and uh, lived with his son and I got around him. And the more I got around him, the more I wanted to be around him because I saw Christ in his life. And he shared this story once, and it so impacted me about walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He said he was at his desk, <clears throat> the pastor of a big church, and one of his elders called, and he said, uh, he said, Frank, 
I just wanted to call and check and make sure you followed up on this thing that we had talked about last week. And my friend, the mentor, Frank, said, of course, of course I did. And so they hung up the phone, and Frank sat there for a second, and the Spirit of God was moving on his heart. And Frank said to himself, I lied. I didn't follow up on that. Why did I lie to him? And he said, it's obvious why I lied to him. I didn't want to look like somebody that was irresponsible. So I lied to cover for myself. So he said, then I I just knew the Spirit said, you got to call that man and tell him that you lied. And he said, but Lord, I'm the pastor. What what is he going to think of me as the pastor of the church if I call him right back and say, hey, I lied? And he said the spirit wouldn't let up, so he dialed the man's number, and he said, Joe, this is Frank. He said, I know. I just got off the phone with you 30 seconds ago. He said, I lied to you. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, I didn't do what I said I did. And I just felt so stupid, I just said yes, that I did it. But I didn't really do it. And of course, the guy forgave him. But I think that story is such a small thing, you know? But here's the thing. If at First Baptist Church Chattahoochee, we're going to see God do big things in our lives, we're going to have to pay attention to the small things. Because the Holy Spirit is so sensitive. I can't lie, even if it's a white lie. I can't make myself look better than I really am to you. I can't tell you something that's only partway true. I can't go behind somebody's back and say, you know, this person ticks me off in our church. And here's why. Because you know what that does? In Ephesians, it says that quenches the Spirit of God. And when you quench the Spirit of God, what happens is you begin to live out of your flesh, not out of the Holy Spirit working through you. So your life Even though you have the Spirit of God as a believer in Christ, now you're just living like one that does not have the Spirit and nothing supernatural is going to come out of your life. You're just going to live a very natural life when you quench the Spirit. So the the Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit also shows us the flip side of sin If you look at a coin, on one side is sin, the other side maybe in this illustration, righteousness. Jesus didn't just forgive us of our sin. He lived a righteous life. In other words, he lived a perfect life. And to go to heaven, you must not only not have sin, but you must be righteous. And so when we are convicted of our sin, we're also convicted of the fact that we're not perfect. We're not righteous. And God sees the Christian through the son and he sees the son's righteousness and you are able now to enter into his presence, his holiness, 
because he's dealt both with sin and righteousness. And then finally, judgment. The Holy Spirit in our text, he convicts concerning judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world, which is not God, but Satan is what the scriptures say, has been judged. That's what it says in our text. The world's judgment is erroneous and actually it's evil. The world judges things foolishly and even evil. And it is supremely demonstrated by its rejection of the Son of God. The world has rejected the person of Jesus Christ. And it is revealing that the world is in error. The world is foolish about its view of who the person and work of Jesus Christ is. And so when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of its judgment because it has a false assessment of who Jesus Christ was. And the world will be judged for that false assessment. It's the home stretch. There's only two possible responses to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. There's repentance, meaning, God, I see your truth and I'm going to turn from my sin. And then there's rejection. I reject that. I don't believe that. That's stupid. That's foolish. I'm not doing that. Look with me. And I I ask you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke 18. And I'm going to look in my Bible. I don't have it in my notes. So I'm going to have to put my glasses on here. Luke 18, 18. Always remember where that's at because it's 18, 18. It's It's the story of a rich, so a wealthy young man. And he's a ruler. And he comes to Jesus with the, with the most important question any man could ever come to God with. And the question is, basically, what must I do to be saved? So let's look at it together. In verse 18, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That is Jesus saying, I'm God. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Let's stop right there for a minute. Can you not be rich and go to heaven? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. What Jesus has done, because he's God, is he's identified the one thing. So you may be sitting there going, I've surrendered everything to God. But you know what everything is to God? It's the one thing that you won't surrender. 
You want to get at the, the everything? What's the one thing that you say, that one's mine? That's what Jesus is doing to him right here. He's saying, yeah, you did that, and yeah, you did that, and yeah, you did that, but let me put my finger on something for you, buddy. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he's like, ah, I'm really wealthy, and I really like my money. I can't let go. All right, so then he says in 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, listen to what Peter says. Remember I said there's two responses to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. One is rejection. We see that with the rich man. He rejects it. Now watch what Peter does. 28, and Peter said, see, we've left our homes, this is repentance, and followed you. And he said to them, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life, in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the verse I read that changed my life. I was February 27th, 1987, and a guy had asked me, Clint, what keeps you from giving your life to Christ? And I wasn't rich, though I know I have the appearance of that. That wasn't my problem. My problem was much more shallow than that. When this friend asked me, what's keeping you from giving your life to Christ? My answer was fun. I like to party. I like to drink. I like to dance. I like to go out with girls. And from what I can tell, looking at your Bible, I'd have to quit all of that. And he showed me this passage. Do you see what Jesus told them at the end of this passage? He says in verse 29, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or the party or the kegs or the girls for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more when we always think, well, it's eternal life. No, he says, in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And when I read that verse, I said, wow, I didn't know that was in there. He said, well, you got to take it as a promise. What about you? Every Christian is a convert. So if I meet you and I ask you, when did you become a Christian? And you tell me I've been a Christian my whole life, <clears throat> wrong answer. Every Christian is a convert. 
at some point, you must humble yourself before God and say, Lord, I believe you are who you said you were. Lord, come into my life and forgive me of my sins that I might have not just eternal life, but in this life, all that you offer, all that you promise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to our soul's need for you. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray even now, Spirit, convict the believer and the non-believer alike in whatever ways you need to move to make us trust and hope in you and you alone. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.